God has richly blessed my family by being here with you this week, and we're prayerful that our time together, certainly our time in His Word, has been a blessing to you as well. We're excited about what He's doing here among you and what you are involved in and doing His work. And so I want to encourage you in that, and hopefully these studies have been able to to help guide you a little bit more as you consider His goodness. And we'll see that today, especially in Genesis 4, as we begin to look at this world that's been so marred by sin, and yet what we'll see is God's grace extended into this world that has just been overcome by sin already from the very beginning. Two short pages ago, or two short chapters ago, uh, in the book of Genesis, we're in paradise and getting this description of this beauty and of God coming down to have fellowship with his people. And yet, in the study today in Genesis 4, a brother is going to kill his brother. How far we've come in so short a time. And you can imagine then what the world now looks like. And we can certainly look out and see how terrible things are. But God's grace continues and continues to be extended to this world that's been marred by sin. Adam knew his wife, verse 1 says, and she conceived... And bore Cain and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. It's further evidence that Adam and Eve have accepted their punishment that was handed down. This was going to be a painful process. Her labor was going to be painful. And yet she submitted to it. This is what God has offered as his plan. And as terrible as it may seem, as painful as it may be, as much as she'll have to sacrifice, it's all she has. So she and Adam have accepted their, their station, their role, and their punishment. So she says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. The, the name Cain sounds like the Hebrew word for acquired, but it's interesting to me that she's giving God the credit for this man, which means, I believe, that she's thinking of that promise of this one that is to come through her. God has fulfilled his promise. Perhaps this is the one. In Genesis 3.15, she's thinking of that. It's something similar we see in Genesis 5 when Lamech's uh, son is born. We know him as Noah. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us concerning our working and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And we see kind of that idea going through the Old Testament. The names were important, and usually they were thinking of, is this the one that God has promised? Is this the Messiah, the promised one? Well, certainly she's tuned into that. So I believe we get a, a happy glimpse at their acceptance of their, of their punishment. We saw that really at the end of chapter 3 and more clearly now at the beginning of chapter 4. And then she continues, and she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. They obey his God, uh, God's command to be fruitful and multiply. Even though there is pain tied to the process, they're obeying God and they're continuing forward. We begin to learn something about these men that are born. Abel is a keeper of flocks or a keeper of sheep, and Cain is a tiller of the ground. Their sons are born into a world that has been cursed by sin, and so there's now a need to work, to toil to produce for the family, and so they're recognized by the hard labor they have to do to produce what's needed for their survival. So Abel is a keeper of sheep. In a world marred by sin, some have suggested, well, they need to eat, they're going to have to eat sheep. Not yet. It's Genesis 9 where the eating of meat is sanctioned, but they do need clothing, don't they? In a world that's been touched by sin, there's a need for clothing. And with wool, you don't have to kill every animal that you get the clothing from. Not just make the skins, you can shear the animal. And so here is an, an animal that can be used for, for clothing instead of for food. In Genesis 9, 2 through 4, we learn that, that then meat will be uh, eligible as well. That's only after the time of the flood. Cain is a tiller of the ground. He's following after his father Adam. He'll have to work the land. There's now extra mouths to feed. There's going to be more work that needs to be done. And so he's going to have to clear out these thorns and thistles. Can you imagine 
any greater reminder of the consequence of sin than tilling the earth and removing the thorns and the thistles out of the way so that you can actually bring forth the food that you need, and even that by God's grace. And so we see this family of God beginning to grow here. And so after the course of time, Cain brings forth an offering. I think it's interesting that Cain is the first one that's mentioned here in this process of time, bringing forth an offering. We know what's going to happen, so we may think that Cain just kind of does this as an afterthought. Maybe so, but he's the first one mentioned as bringing forth his offering. And Abel also. This is really the first account of an external act of worship. I want you to think about that for a moment. This is our first glimpse at family worship, or an individual even, worshiping in the Bible in, an, in the external kind of sense. Not just the relationship sense, but providing something, offering something up to God. And these men have brought gifts to the Lord. <clears throat> worship really is, is simply approaching God. That's the idea of worship in Leviticus 1. The idea of bringing the gifts before the tabernacle. You present them before the Lord. There's a verb that's used there and the noun as well. And the word is korban. We see that in the New Testament when the Pharisees were talking about not being able to take care of their parents because they've already made korban to God. All their offerings have been given to God already. So they have nothing left over to take care of their parents. It's interesting that the... Ten Commandments. We'll talk about taking care of parents much later. Some other commandments talk about helping out in the temple. They're denying God's law by keeping God's law, and they're trying to find ways around doing what they're supposed to be doing. But the point is that that word korban means bringing something before God, this idea of bringing it to him. And that's what these men are doing. They're seeking God through worship. Now, we're not told what God told them to bring or how he told them to bring it, but we see them acting. And so we're learning a bit about this external act of worship. And what we'll learn in part of this is that not everything we may offer to God is going to be acceptable to God. We have to learn to deal with that. God is the one who determines what worship to him should look like. It's not our feelings about it or what someone else tells me. What has God said? We've seen that really in the first few chapters of Genesis. But what about these offerings? Some people want to argue about what they're offering. You know, maybe it's Abel offered the right thing and Cain didn't. In the end, we'll see that is true. But it's not necessarily the material. It's not the substance. They're offering up the fruit of their labors. It's what they have to offer. I think it makes perfect sense that Cain is going to offer fruit of the ground and Abel is going to offer fruit from his flock. They're giving to them what God has put in their hands. It's interesting how all through the Old Testament, when God requires a sacrifice, it's something that he's actually put in their hands anyway. <laughs> he's given to them what they're allowed them to give back. We have to say sometimes that the offering, that we're returning a portion of what God has given us. That's absolutely true. He's made us able to worship him by giving us life and then by giving us the substance of things that we end up giving back to him in worship. We're really just returning to him. So we're recognizing his place as the giver of all these things. So it makes sense, I believe, what they're giving. That's not the argument here. But beyond the material, can we see some other differences in their worship? And I believe we can. I think the text brings those out. Cain brought his offering in the process of time, my version says, there are other textual readings that say that it's the time after the reaping, that it's at the end of times that he brought his, his offering forward. It may be indicating that Cain has basically taken care of all of his needs. He set aside everything he's going to need to feed the family and take care of what he wants. And whatever is left over then, he's brought there. Maybe a lot, but he's brought all this leftover to the Lord. There seems to be a subtle indication of that in the text. Certainly when we look then and what's said about Abel's offering. Abel brought of the firstborn and of their fat. And so he's chosen the first and the best, the fattest, as an offering to the Lord, and then he keeps the rest 
for himself. There's a difference. There's a distinction in what's being offered. And there's a subtlety in the text that seems to indicate that that's exactly the issue. But here is the real issue. The Lord respected Abel and his offering, but not Cain and his offering. I want you to notice the order that this is revealed here to us. Abel was respected by God. Therefore, his offering was respected by God. I want you to notice as we go through this what God looks at first every time. God looks first at the offerer, then at the offering. We, when we try to approach God not as spirit, as we learned in Genesis 1-2, God is spirit. We try to approach God as a man. We think the bigger the offering, the more likely he's going to accept it. No, that's not the case with God. The more acceptable we are, then the more acceptable our offering is. And it may be small. It could be the two mites of a widow that Jesus said was a much greater offering than what all those Pharisees had given. She was respected by God, and thus her offering was respected. So here, Abel was respected by God. Because he did not respect Cain, he also did not respect his offering, and that's very clear in the text, and I think we'll see that again in a moment. So God the Spirit, really, is looking first for a relationship with his creation. He's not just looking for a transfer of goods. It is religion and religious ideas that kind of teach us that we can manipulate or pacify God with good gifts. We may throw the virgin in the volcano to pacify the gods. That's not an idea that the Bible brings about. The Bible teaches that God is seeking for true worshipers in John chapter 4 who will worship the Father in spirit and truth. It's not on this mountain or on the mountain in Jerusalem. It's not at this temple or that temple. God is seeking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what he's looking for. And that's what he'll respect. And that'll govern how we end up worshiping, in fact. God doesn't need the things that we offer. He can make as many sheep as he wants, or as many grains, or as many coins, or as many whatever. But the gift does reveal the heart of the giver, doesn't it? And that's what he's looking at. He looks at our heart through the gift. 2 Corinthians 8.5 speaks to that so cleanly. Paul is talking about these people in Macedonia that are in extreme poverty. But they wanted so much to be able to send a gift to the Jews in Jerusalem, or the Christians in Jerusalem that were suffering. And so they gave first of themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. He says they were able to give above and beyond what we expected. In fact, it seems like Paul tried to dissuade them, because he knew they were given so much, and they begged us that they may be able to participate in the grace of this giving to the saints, because they were giving themselves first to the Lord. <laughs> Have you ever given begrudgingly? You thought, the light bills come and do. And God says, i got to give something, but I need to pay the lights. You do need to pay the lights. You need to take care of those kind of things. But you shouldn't give begrudgingly. You should give sacrificially. All that we have was given to us by the Lord. Romans 12 says we need to be giving ourselves as a living sacrifice. And when God accepts us, then he will accept the gifts we'll give. And in fact, I want to, I want to challenge you to this. When you're giving yourselves properly to the Lord... Those gifts that you give end up becoming bigger as well because you're more involved in his work. You understand why you're giving to the Lord and what that really means. And so it's no longer begrudging. A friend of mine used to say that God wants us to give until it hurts. He says, well, that's not really true, though. He wants us to give until it feels good. <laughs> and then we learn and we grow from that as we're giving and giving even beyond our means. You think about how were the Macedonians able to give beyond their means? Well, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, we see the church, the early church, gathering together and really giving beyond their means. The idea means beyond what they had liquid. What did they do? People like Barnabas went and sold some land so they could help support these saints who had come to Jerusalem and didn't go back after they were converted so they could stay and continue to learn at the feet of the apostles. They went and sold something they had and made it liquid. And they gave beyond their immediate means to do that. 
You ever been challenged to do that? Our brother Gary one time was going to make a trip to Brazil, and he was just shy of being able to fulfill the need for his, for his plane tickets. And he could have found the support somewhere. But there was one family that decided they wanted to help. And when I heard about this, this story, and Gary wasn't telling it, someone else was telling it. Uh, when I heard about this story, though, it moved me to think about how sacrificial I'm being. This family had 12 children. 12 children. And they had a family meeting, and they said, we'd like to be able to help with this extra little bit of money. But what it's going to mean is we don't eat meat this month for the whole month. And one by one, the whole family said, we can do without meat this month. Let's send Gary to Brazil. It makes me want to cry to think about it. It was a family decision to make that sacrifice for a little over $100. But it was their meat budget for this family for the whole month. And they went without so that Gary could go to Brazil and spread the seed. My reaction to that was good for them. (laughs) What an experience. What a growth that produced. You think that offering was acceptable to the Lord? You see their hearts being acceptable before the Lord as they then made that sacrifice. First gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. That's what God is looking for. He's not looking for the sacrifice of oxen and sheep. Psalm 40 says he's looking for that contrite heart. God accepts the heart that's that's acceptable to him. And then the offering becomes acceptable as well. So Cain, when he realized that his offering had not been accepted, he was very angry and visibly upset. His countenance fell. And even more, as he sees that Abel's was accepted. There's some kind of jealousy going on here. And you know, it's a common reaction to us. I've studied with many people. And when you just read the Bible and they recognize that is not what they're doing, they become upset and sometimes upset with me. I had a gentleman throw his keys on the table and say, I don't need this abuse from you. I don't need you to tell me that. I said, listen, you read the passage. All we're doing is sitting here talking. You're the one who read it. And we're upset before I said the first word. God's word is working on you. But he ended up kicking me and my wife out of his house because of what he read about the situation his marriage was in. He read the text. And so often then, we may become visibly upset. had another man that got very upset with me and said, I've never had anybody have the courage you do to tell me these things. And I said, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. He said, I know and I appreciate it. (laughs) But he was upset. But he recognized he was upset with himself. You know, why be upset with God? If we're seeking God, if King's truly seeking God, why be upset with God when God doesn't accept what we're offering? Do we get mad at our wives if we bring home the wrong flowers and that's not what she wanted? We may at first, but then we really will start thinking, I really wish I'd gotten her what, I, what she wanted. That's what I intended with this. It was a gift, and I, I just got the wrong thing. If we get mad at her because she didn't like the gift we got her when we didn't get her what she really likes. Now, most of our wives are very gracious and would say, we appreciate the heart behind the gift. Thank you for this. But we may make a mistake sometimes. We shouldn't get mad at the one who's supposed to be receiving the gift, though. We want to give them what they want. So what we do, we take it back and get the other thing. Or we get the other thing anyway. We can't take it back. But sometimes when we're seeking for God and he doesn't accept our gifts, then we get offended. He doesn't like our offering. And so I'm just going to be mad at God. I'm not going to give him anything else ever. I've seen that attitude to a lot of people. What we ought to do is find out where we messed up and try again. And what does that reveal about our worship? And it's really selfish. What happens to some people when they, they go and they find out that they're not worshiping properly? Well, I don't like this church. They, they, don't, they don't say things the way I like. I, I want to go find a church where I feel like I fit in. I want to go find a church that's doing the will of the Lord. First, I want to find God. 
They want to find people that want to do as well. That's how it should be. But what do we do? We church shop. So we find one that feels comfortable. We can fit in here. Why? Because they're doing things I like. Something that pleases me. That's not worship. That's self-worship in the end. So Cain has become visibly upset. It's really common, though. When we study the Bible and discover that our worship is not pleasing to God, the best thing we can do is go back and learn from him. What does he want? Repent of what we've done wrong. Ask his forgiveness. And then go forward doing his will, not our will. That takes a humble heart. But that's the kind of heart, then, that's going to be accepted. The, the broken and contrite heart when you recognize your error. And God will show you. So I love God's reaction here. Cain is upset, and we might expect the Lord to say, well, wake up! But no, he comes in in the middle of Cain's anger and says, why are you angry? Sometimes that question burns people up. But I think it's the right question. It's what I asked the gentleman who threw his keys down on the table. I said, what are you upset about? <laughs> he didn't like it. But often that kind of a question will disarm someone and actually make them think. When someone comes at you, well, I can't believe you would say that. I've never done that. My parents never did that. My church doesn't do that. Why would you tell me that? You say, why are you upset about that? You read it. Why are you upset? And they stop and think, why am I upset? <laughs> I want to please God. That's my desire. Why am I upset about that? The Lord is absolutely gracious and good to King here. And he asked the right question. Why are you upset? Think about that for a minute. God wants Cain to consider his own reasoning. We want to do the right thing. I don't think most people go into worship of God saying, well, I hope I get this wrong today. I just want to go do all the things. Nobody does that. Most people believe they're worshiping God the right way. And they've been trained to worship God the right way. They believe being raised in their parents' church or whatever it is, whatever movement they're a part of. They do that because they really in some way believe they're doing the right thing. Most people don't think, I'm just doing this wrong, I'm going to keep doing it wrong because this just feels good. No. Most people believe they're doing what's right. We find out that we're not, though, when it's really clear to us, we ought to be willing to humble ourselves and change our mind. So God comes to Cain's side and says, hold on a second, Cain, what are you upset about? And it's amazing, he doesn't just leave it hanging, he gives him the solution. He doesn't really wait for Cain's response. If you do well, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? Did you notice that? Will you not be accepted? He didn't say, won't I then accept your offering? God's not looking at the offering. He's looking at Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Well, we know what's going to happen. But in order for Cain to do well, I believe there's something that's implicit here. It would be necessary for him to know what God wants. We see that Abel did well. He was accepted. And so God goes to Cain and says, well, you just need to do well. We're not told, it's not revealed here in Genesis at least, what God wanted from them, what he expected from them, but we do see his reaction to them. Abel did well, Cain did not. Hebrews 11.4 tells us, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Abel acted by faith, and Cain did not. We talked the other day about faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I believe we can draw a conclusion. Abel heard what God said, and that's what he offered him. That is not what Cain did conclude that Cain still has to listen to God and then offer God what God is asking about. We'll come back to this verse in a few moments, but right now, God has spelled out for Cain how to be accepted. Do well. Do well. So, if you do not do well, there's issues that are deeper. Sin lies at the door. We might say it's right under the bed. Some of the versions say it's crouching at the door. The idea is, if you don't do well, it's not that sin's out there in South Carolina right there. 
It's right there waiting for you. And it doesn't take long. We like to think sometimes that it takes a whole lot to fall into sin. It's not just the right or wrong way to worship God that's at issue here. Behind it is the question of the desire to obey or not to obey. And sin is just right there. It's circling. It's waiting to take advantage. So it's greater than he realizes here. If he doesn't do well, then and listening to God's words and accepting these things that God has given for him to do, then sin lies at the door. It's not far away at all. It's right there. And really the problem is simply by not doing well. Even if we're not seeking to do evil, simply by not doing well, we're already in the presence of sin. That's the thing. We need to be actively seeking to do well and to work God's righteousness in our lives. And so sometimes we take this path of least resistance. Well, I just won't do anything. I don't want to be wrong, so I just won't act. You're wrong. (laughs) Choosing not to do is already a choice. We must choose to act and to act by faith and do God's will. So, he says something interesting here in verse 7, that sin's desire is for you, but you should rule over it. I don't know if you recognize that phrase, but you've seen it before. In Genesis 3.16, this is what he told the woman. There's a little twist to it. But he told her, your desire, very your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. He's talking about what the right order for rule is, for government. In that case, the man should govern the woman, though her desire would be to govern. She should submit herself, not him force her into submission, but she should submit herself. But in this case, sin wants to govern you. But you, as a human being, were not made to be governed by sin. You were made to be disciplined against it. You should govern over it. That's the idea here. You should not allow sin into your life. You keep that door shut. But to do that, you must do well. You've got to do what God revealed. It's the only hope we have, and it's the only way around it. So, It's interesting to me what we can kind of also see here implicitly. That man is not just some evolved animal who cannot help himself. That has actually been taught. That's been taught since time I was in high school about certain subjects. We're just animals, so you can't really help yourself. Do what comes naturally, and then we'll we'll bear up with the consequences later. Just learn how to deal better with the consequences. That's called maturing. No, it's not. (laughs) Maturing is learning wisdom by seeing other people's mistakes and then not making those same mistakes. But we are not just animals who can't help ourselves, have to satisfy our animal urges. We are people who can choose at every turn to do well. And we must choose at every turn to do well. We cannot uh, say that we are, we are unable to do what God wants us to do. From early on, we can learn how to do what's right, and we better be doing it. Let's continue in the reading now, starting at verse 8. Genesis 4, 8 through 12. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Seems innocent enough. I don't know if you noticed. I tried to emphasize it a little bit. Six times the word brother is mentioned in this reading. And really, starting back at verse 4, a seventh time. Shouldn't be shocked by that now, early in Genesis, to see things repeated seven times. But why emphasize that word so many times? Because what Cain's about to do is heinous. It is unnatural. And it demonstrates just how far from, from reason that sin will take us. 
that a brother would be willing to kill his brother. This is the second most intimate relationship among people on earth. You have husband and wife, and you have sister and brother, brother and brother. The second most intimate relationship there is, and it's going to be divided and destroyed by sin. This is how, this is what God wants us to see that sin does. And so, Cain's lack of faith, his envy, his murder, and his way, they'll be brought up all throughout Bible history as a warning. Do not follow in the way of Cain, we're told in 1 John and in Jude. These are, these are envious and sinful attitudes that Cain is showing here. So they're brothers. Another thing that's emphasized here is why Abel would trust him so much. There's no reason for mistrust as Cain just wants to talk to him. There's a, a translation that says, that Cain told Abel, his brother, it's possible that he's talking about, well, God came and talked to me, and he went to tell Abel about it, knowing that would entice Abel to come. It's possible. At any rate, he's having this conversation. It takes him out, and as they're going out into the field, he rises up against his brother and kills him. Well, they, they met in the field. They both work there. <laughs> one's out there with the sheep, and one's planting and, and tilling the, the plants. So it doesn't make any sense not to trust him to go out into the field together, but Cain has risen up against him. And it's killed them. As I mentioned before, a short time ago, we're in God's paradise. And now a man has just murdered his own brother. We should not just simply dismiss sin. We should never allow ourselves to imagine that sin is just simple. God makes it abundantly clear that sin always walks hand in hand with death. Sin always walks hand in hand with death. And here, a brother killed a brother because of sin. And the Lord says to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? When he's called to Adam, he said, where are you? Here, he's asking a similar question. Where are you? But he says it in the language of what has just happened. Where is Abel, your brother? Isn't it interesting that God is always near? In the narrative here, Cain kills his brother and God says, where is Abel? Like in the split second. I don't know if it happened that quickly, but it's the way it's narrated to us so that we understand God is right there. He is near. <laughs> So as soon as Cain finishes his terrible work, the Lord's got some questions. And God brings this question seeking to raise a confession because God already knows the answer. We find out in verse 10 that the blood of Abel's already been talking to God. He already knows where Abel is. So why ask? He's seeking a confession from Cain. Tell me. So God's near. He respects Abel, and yet he allows Cain to kill Abel. Some of the great uh, denominations will teach a kind of a health and wealth gospel that if you're doing what's right, God will not let anybody touch you. That is not true. Here we've got Abel who's pleasing to God and God allowed him to suffer the consequences of another's actions to the point of death. All the apostles, save one, were put to death. John seems to be the only one that, that wasn't actually uh, martyred for his belief. Jesus was put on the cross. It is not proof that you're doing right that you live a long life. And it's not proof that you're doing wrong, that, you, that you're cut off early. Good things and bad things happen equally to people here on earth. God did not interfere in Cain killing Abel. He allows bad people to make bad decisions and have to live with those and the consequences to come across even the good people. God has drawn near to Cain in such grace, has instructed him and encouraged him to do well, but he left the decision up to Cain. This is free will. This is what happens. God himself talking to Cain did not keep Cain from doing wrong. The just and the unjust suffer in this world. This cracked lens view makes people do crazy things because they think they're doing what's right because they haven't looked to see what is right. And the consequences come down. 
So Cain says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? I emphasize that for a second because I want you to see something that Cain is doing here. He has a pretty arrogant response. And he's really hardened. I think we see that at least two ways here, how he's hardened because of his sin. The first, he lies to God's face. Would you have the courage to do that? God says, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. He knows exactly where he is. He just killed him. But this shows that Cain has no fear of God. None. And I believe we get to that point sometimes where we actually actively are lying to God about our sins. We certainly lie to ourselves about them. We lie to other people. But I believe we get to a point where we lie to God about them. We believe God can't see this. God won't know what I'm doing. Yes, he will. <laughs> yes, he does. And if we can't confess our sins to God, then we're hopeless. <laughs> there is nowhere else we can go. And so he's lying to God's face. But there's a second thing. Do you see that he did just what Adam and Eve did? I think he's learned from them already. He blames God. Am I my brother's keeper? I thought Abel was the one you love and the one you're so powerful and wanting to take care of and accepting the gifts of. The idea here is, aren't you supposed to be taking care of this favored son of yours? Am I the one that's doing that? God, did you let one slip through? Whew, can you imagine? The kind of arrogance. If something happened to Abel, it must be your fault. You can't protect your favorite one? <laughs> And people will make those kind of accusations. But I believe that's what Cain's doing here. Am I the one that's supposed to be tending to Abel? The absolute response is, yes, you are. We are all our brother's keepers. We should be helping each other out at every turn, every opportunity, and we certainly need that help. But Cain is throwing that up in God's face. So God says, sound familiar? What have you done? <laughs> what have you done? No longer a search for answers, but this is an enough moment. <laughs> God has been so gracious. He's questioning. He's trying to draw Cain out of himself, draw Cain to himself. And Cain keeps rejecting and keeps putting it off and keeps throwing it up in God's face. What have you done? God has been so patient and long-suffering. He's given instruction so that Cain could do well. That was implicit. We didn't see that one. But it began with God's instruction, and Cain says, but I'm going to do it this way. I want to suggest to you that so often when we first meet people who are unwilling to begin by looking at God's word and seeking his instruction, that in some way feel like they're serving the Lord, but they have never looked into his word, those people sometimes when we open the word and start to use it, they will chafe at that <laughs> because their feelings are so powerful. And they've been doing this for so long, and they're not used to looking first for God's instruction and acting. So they'll chafe at that. So God gave instruction so Cain could do well. God then came close to help him consider his attitude. What, what, why is your countenance fallen? And trying to encourage him to go back and look at the word and make sure that he's doing well before it's too late. And then, another opportunity after he's already killed Abel, God comes down and says, where is your brother? Why, if I was God, I'd be so angry by this point. <laughs> it's, again, it's one of those things where the, my wife says, I'm just glad you're not God. And so am I. <laughs> I wouldn't be here if I were God. I'd be so angry with Cain. God gives him another opportunity to confess his sin. Do you remember in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira, when they sin against the Holy Spirit, they lie to the church about how much money they brought, they lie to God about how much money they brought. <clears throat> you notice they came in separately? Ananias came in first, and he said it was sold for such and such, and Peter says, why have you lied to God? Then he dies. When Sapphira comes in, Peter doesn't say, you, you liars. He says, let me ask you a question. How much did you sell that land for? Was it for this much? You know what he was doing? giving her an opportunity to confess and repent and not have to die. And she said, oh, yeah, it was for that much. 
Why, Sapphira? God gave her an opportunity. God has given Cain yet another opportunity. What grace he extends in the face of blatant sin. I'm so thankful for his grace in the face of blatant sin. Because he reaches out and offers Cain a chance to confess and to seek this pathway back. If Cain will just stop now, even after his terrible sin, will stop now and confess. I killed him. I know I shouldn't have died. He'd be turning around. That's repentance. He'd be coming back and God could draw him back. There's going to be consequences still. But he could bring him back. That's not what Cain wants. Cain rejects all of these opportunities for God's grace. And so God says, okay, enough. Enough. There comes a moment where there's enough. He says, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Isn't that a weird statement? Kind of a strange thing to think about. Sounds kind of mystical or something. Not at all. When you consider what God's talking about. Before he announces the punishment on unjust Cain, God declares something interesting about righteous Abel. Isn't this amazing? The very first death in the Bible brings this first glimpse also of a hope for life after this one. God is saying here that in some way, Abel still is communicating with God even after his death. Hebrews 11.4, I said we'd come back to that. It says, Abel through faith being dead still speaks. It says he speaks better things than Cain. Is that not amazing? The faithful who do well and live by faith, even after death, have a relationship with God. Abel's the first example of that, and we see that all through the Old and New Testament. But isn't it amazing that the first glimpse of resurrection is actually at the very first death? Here's his blood still speaking. How is that possible? Not physically possible, but Abel is spiritually still alive and still in fellowship with God, still talking with God, while Cain's rejecting at every turn. What a beautiful picture of the resurrection. (laughs) Isn't that gorgeous? So, uh, I had Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11 there. That's the saints under the altar. They've been martyred, and their blood, really, under the altar is where you poured the blood. Their blood is speaking to God. How long will it be before you avenge it? So that's a picture that's carried through the entire Bible. So, he turns to Cain and says, Now you are cursed from the earth. Sound familiar? Curses Cain himself, just as he had cursed the serpent before. Back in chapter 3. What a painful moment that must have been for God. God describes how the Israelites weren't just given uh, their their promised land, weren't just brought out of Egypt, that it cost God something. The firstborn of all those Egyptians, and those people were his people. He made those people. It was painful for God. But he did it as a sacrifice for the Israelites. And they needed to understand what a painful sacrifice that was. God has just cursed one of the four people that's on earth that we know of, at least that have been in this revelation this part. He's cursed him just like he cursed the serpent because he's shown himself to really be seed of the serpent. (laughs) He acts like his father, the serpent, in that sense, in a spiritual sense, obviously. And so he receives the same curse. Those who insist on disobeying the voice of God are doomed, all of them, to the same fate. Just as the serpent did, just as Cain did. And so as a result of this curse, of this curse. You've got this cursed earth that's already hardened and thorny and now Cain himself is cursed. So as he goes to work the cursed earth there's a double curse. Nothing's going to be produced. Adam can push away the thorns and and work this cursed earth into something to eat. Cain cannot because he's cursed and the earth is cursed. So no matter how hard he works the earth's not going to produce. That sounds terrible but I want to tell you that's a blessing. Sometimes the most difficult things that happen to us are in fact the greatest blessings because
because they should turn us to God. That's certainly what God wants here. So cursed hands working a cursed earth are useless. God predicts something here. He's not condemning Cain to be a vagabond and a fugitive. He's just predicting what's going to happen. We'll see in a moment that it's Cain's decision that he makes this choice to become a fugitive and a vagabond. God just simply says, it's what's going to happen. He knows Cain's heart already. But um, we're going to see that his curse doesn't include that. Uh, Cain himself will choose that. But I want us to see the long-suffering grace of God here. I think this is worth looking at. Again, in God's place, what would you have done? <laughs> I would have squashed Cain out. <laughs> Why not simply kill Cain? He deserves death. He killed Abel, who's a good and righteous person, who is pleasing to God. Cain deserves death. hope you look at yourself when you're saying that Cain deserves death, because I deserve death. <laughs> what a blessing that God doesn't think like we do. Thank you to my wife for reminding me that so often. If the earth will no longer yield to him, where is Cain going to get his food? I want you to try to get into the mind of God here. Why make that the curse? Where is Cain going to get his food from? There's a few places. He could be like the serpent. Get in among the bushes, among the thorns. God's amply providing food for the animals. They don't till. They don't cultivate. Jesus talks about that a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount. How humbling for this farmer who's producing this crop to have to now scramble among the bushes on his hands and knees on his belly, in this posture of humiliation, just like the serpent, to be able to find food in the bush and eat like an animal. But even in that, God's good because he's providing that food out there in the field. So very similar to the serpent's case, he no longer has the opportunity for the green herb, but he's got the stuff he can eat that's produced out in the field. You ever eaten wild corn or wild strawberries? It's not the greatest thing, but it'll sustain you. It'll work. Cain could do that. He could... Get his food from other people. Far from Adam's family, he may go out and steal, perform some kind of a service for them, something demeaning and humbling, but he may do that. And maybe he'll get some kind of pay and food. It's going to end up being his choice when he becomes a vagabond and a fugitive. He's going to go all over the face of the earth trying to find people who help sustain him. Not a very noble way of getting his food, but something he's got to do. But there's a third choice, and I think this is the one that God has intended here. This would bring him back. Who else is providing food at this point? Adam. Adam can still produce. But what would that require from Cain? He'd have to confess to his father that he killed his other son. He'd have to ask for forgiveness. And he'd have to ask for some way for the father to feed him. Remember the story of the prodigal? He had to go by crawling to his father and say, Look, I've I've done wrong. I'm not worthy of this, but I, I need this. That's what Cain would have to do. But wouldn't that bring him back to the path of the fellowship with God? He's going to be among God's family, people who've humbled themselves to do God's sacrificial will for their lives. This is what he needs more than anything else. His parents would forgive him, and bring him in, and have him closer to God. That's certainly not what Cain's going to do. We're going to see that he's going to run. But if God had killed Cain from the beginning, would have taken away his opportunity for repentance leading to forgiveness. Not what God desires. He takes no pleasure in the death even of the wicked, Ezekiel 33 says. Certainly not in the death of the righteous, unless in the New Testament he's rejoicing with them that they've come in to their, their reward. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants the wicked to come to repentance. <laughs> That's what he desires for Cain. And so he puts this burden on Cain that should make him break and look for the right response. 
It doesn't. Let's watch Cain's response, and we'll see just what kind of heart he has. And Cain said to the Lord, verse 13 of Genesis 4, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. My punishment is greater than I can bear. You are an unjust and unfair God. Very different from Adam and Eve's acceptance. They could have complained. They accepted. Some people complain when they find out what God wants and say, well, that's just too much. No one can do that. My own parents. If you can't live by what the Bible teaches, you'll go crazy. Just come and do this other thing that feels okay. No, Father, I want to follow God. I'd love for you to do that too. Very different reaction that Cain had. This is not fair. God is harsh. He is. But look at all the grace he's been giving. In the midst of all this grace, Cain is still acting as a fool. You try to correct a fool, they're going to get you come up. And Cain is not willing. His focus continues on himself. <laughs> In all of these verses, verses 13 and 14, interestingly enough, my, I, or me appear seven times in these verses. He's looking at himself over and over again. Reminds me of the one who is building up his barns because he's got all this abundance. And God says, well, you fool, your soul's going to be required tonight. Then who's all this going to be? <laughs> Looking at himself. Surely you have driven me out. He blames God for all these terrible things he's going to suffer. The consequence of his sin is because of his own sin. But what he does in all this is he ends up revealing that he's the one who's truly to blame. It's not that God's driving him out. He says, I shall be hidden from your face. Isaiah 59, 2, that idea that God's ear is not shortened, that it can't, his arm is not shortened, his ear is not deaf, and his, he's not hidden. But the word hidden there is that we've run from God. This is the idea. And he is saying here in the original, it's more of a, an active. It's not a, these, we've got these kind of passive verbs, I shall be hidden. And the original is more active. I will hide myself from your face is the idea. I will make myself a fugitive and a vagabond. Verse 16 clearly says, it's Cain who went out, not that God told him to go. He went. He chose not to do the better thing. God didn't command any of this. It's Cain's sin and his lack of repentance that bring about these horrible conditions. God is trying to bring him in. He's trying to embrace him with grace. Bring him near. Cain doesn't want it. Because he already rejected listening to God in the first place. When God came with a corrective question, he rejected that. When God came and said, will you confess? He rejected that. And so now he's in this terrible situation and it's all God's fault. How many people do that? Listen to God to begin with. Accept his correction. Listen to his questioning. Where are you? And allow him to correct you. How much better will we be? But then Cain has this crazy notion. And why not, when I run out from your presence, God, anybody who finds you will want to kill me. He may be thinking about Adam. Adam might want to kill him. But it's interesting to me that this fearful concern of him is really something that only he thinks about. Sin carries with it the fear of death. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, Jesus came to taste death for all of us who have been shackled by Satan to the fear of death. We've been held captive by the fear of death. He's released that now by overcoming death for us. But here's this fear of death. 
He's the only one who's ever killed anybody. Proverb 28, verse 1, I love this proverb. It says that the wicked flee when no one pursues. Here's Cain. Someone's going to try to kill me. But the righteous are bold as a lion. If you trust the Lord, you typically want to imagine everybody else is trusting in the Lord, and you, you do things based on that righteousness. The, the saints in Acts chapter 4, they didn't say, God, take away all of the persecution. They said, look on the persecution and grant us that we may continue preaching without fear. Let us be bold as lions and go out anyway. Cain's worried someone's going to murder him. He's unrighteous. And he's, he's trembling when no one's pursuing. But even in this, God continues to show mercy. Cain's accusing him of being too harsh, blames him for this condition, and God says, I'll tell you what, nobody's going to kill you. Ain't going to happen. I'm not going to allow it. And he puts this, this compassionate mark on Cain. Why show compassion to such a horrible person? Isn't that what a horrible person needs? Wouldn't it be great if we all would show compassion to the ones that we feel are so horrible? Didn't Jesus say, love your enemies and those who spitefully use you? Isn't that the best thing for them? Isn't that what God did to us while we were yet sinners and he sent his son, Romans 5, 8, to die on the cross while we were still enemies? It's what he wants for us to do. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, his long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repent. 2 Peter 3 9. People are living hundreds and hundreds of years right now. Look how long Cain's going to have for the possibility and the hope of repentance. God wants to give him a long life in the hopes that he'll think back and remember how good he had it, how good God was to him, and that he'll come to repentance. What a blessing! God has extended to him by not allowing someone just to kill him. <laughs> He's shown incredible compassion to us. He's given us life for us while we were yet sinners. Are you a Christian? <laughs> or are you, like Cain, ignoring his teaching initially? If you're here today, that's a good sign. <laughs> you want to hear more of what he says. Are you willing to be challenged when he says, where are you? What if he asks about your soul? Where is your soul? And you say, am I, am I my soul's keeper? <laughs> yes, you are. Or have you murdered it with sin when he sent his son to buy it back? Would you repent and give your life to him? Would you be willing to accept what he offers in his extreme and abundant grace, even in the face of your rebellion and your sin? He loves you to the point that he sent his own son to die for you. If you're not a Christian today, we can help you make that right. We'd love to study with you. We'd love to encourage you to make the decision to honor God and follow Him, starting today for the rest of your life as a new creation. If you are a Christian, you've been struggling already some. If you're doing like Cain and trying to hide or run from God, we want to help you not do that as well. Whatever your need may be, if we can help you with it, please seek us out. Let us help you to serve God in truth and in grace.